Do you want to talk about imposter syndrome? Yeah. Um mm. I mean, I think it's a it's 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 almost um it's kind of like when I was first dealing with it, I did not know there was a word for it. Mm. Um, I think now that, you know, with social media and the digital age, you start to hear these words more often because people are starting to talk about it. It's it's easily accessible to come across words like that. Mm. Um, but I would say, I guess, the first time I experienced it in regards to, like, my PhD journey would have been, um, yeah, it would have been early on in my PhD mm. where... Um, you know, after my first year of classes and rotations, and when I had finally picked a lab, mm. I was given a project to work on and, um, you know, full reign. Um, so it was really exciting to be given such responsibility at an early stage in my career. Mm. But then at the same time, I had to learn a lot of things without being given the proper resources. I had to kind of immediately become independent before realizing I had to, mm -hmm. um, you know, and I was working with some senior people and I think when their because their patience was very short with me, um, mm -hmm. I started to kind of internalize their kind of, um, impatience with me as me not being, smart enough or me not being skilled enough to do what I had to do. Mm. Um, and it was really difficult to deal with. Um, I think this was in my second year of feeling like I was inferior to everyone else in feeling like I was making mistakes all the time in feeling like, you know, an imposter and feeling like, Oh, I'm, I'm calling myself a PhD student, but you know, no one thinks of me as being able to do this, mm. which, you know, looking back is not true because everybody in that situation was always concerned about themselves. They mm -hmm. were thinking about themselves. They were thinking about making sure everybody saw them in the best light possible. Mm -hmm. It had nothing to do with me, but at the same time with all of this going on and their interactions with me and what I had to produce was all contributing to imposter syndrome. Um, and when I think about it more, I also think back to when I was in high school mm -hmm. and I remember, I think earlier saying how, you know, I had this pressure, not from my parents necessarily, but from society into thinking being a South Asian woman or a woman of South Asian descent, I had mm -hmm. to be smart in science. I had to be smart in math. I had to know all of these things perfectly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I was in high school and I was taking physics and I was taking calculus I would go to each of those classes with knots in my stomach because I was so afraid of how I would do. Um, I did not want to make any mistakes. I did not want to fail my tests. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, trying to achieve that put so much unnecessary pressure on myself to actually sit with the subject, learn it naturally, and enjoy the process. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think... Unfortunately, the way the high school system is in the U.S. at least, there is this immense pressure for students that know they are college bound, who know that they want to achieve something um, educationally. Mm -hmm. There's this huge pressure to do well and be the best you can be. Mm -hmm. And if that means 
memorizing everything, if that means staying up all night and doing practice tests for hours and hours and hours, mm -hmm. it, it gets, a, it, it takes you away from learning to love the subject you are trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. And it pushes you to just, you know, achieve things that, you know, are very false in the sense that a grade, you know, no one cares what your grades were in high school. Once you get a job in your, you know, thirties, um, you know, which is very unfortunate, um, because a school should be a place to, for you to, it should be a safe place for you to fail. Yeah. It should be a safe place for you to try different things and figure out what your passions are. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, you know, I feel like that's something that maybe they try to achieve when you are in kindergarten, first grade. Mm -hmm. But after that, it's almost as if, nope, okay, now we are going to continue on and you have to perform well to the test. And if you don't, you fail. You, you know, you're not cut out for this, which is mm. very, very unfortunate. Yeah. Very, very sad. Yeah. Talking of uh, advisors, you had talked about something, the first, the first time you experienced being in a lab and how toxic it was and you decided to move to another lab. Do you want to talk about more about that? Like yeah. how would you, how would someone even recognize that? Mm -hmm. Um Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so um I will say I think because it was my first lab experience, I really went along the lines of looking for a lab that did research I thought I would be interested in. Mm. So, you know, as an undergraduate in cell biology, I thought, you know, cancer research is, you know, even to this day, it's still a very ongoing quest um, for science researchers and scientists. Um, but as an undergraduate, I thought, okay, this would be a perfect field to enter the research world in. Mm. Um, and because I was looking directly at that, I also was also, you know, to be honest, very impatient in the sense that I wanted to find something right away and join and start doing the work. Mm. Um, so that led me to a clinician who did research um, part time, but um, spent most of the time in the clinic in the oncology clinic. Mm. And um, when I met with this person, uh, you know, she was very like she showed no signs of being a very like a demanding lab or anything. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, me not really knowing right away what to look out for, was just excited by the fact that she was doing research in oncology. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, this would be perfect on my resume. It's be perfect experience. So let me just do it. Mm -hmm. And my schedule allowed me to go to the lab once a day, but for as many hours in the day as possible. Um, and, you know, in the first two weeks or so, I was under the guidance of a uh, research uh, technician. Mm -hmm. And after that, I was pretty much told to just go on my own, you know, start a new project and um, pretty much learn what I had to learn um, on my own, mm -hmm. which was very intimidating, you know, as a what I think I was 19 at the time mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, first time in a lab you know, first time not knowing what to ex expect mm -hmm. and kind of going back to what I was saying about the freedom to fail and having the, com being safe, being in an environment that allows you to mm -hmm. fail and not have consequences. Mm -hmm. Um, I did not experience that at all in this particular situation. I, for example, um, first time working with cells, first time mm -hmm. working with cell culture, mm -hmm. I would get contamination. Mm -hmm. 
I, you know, I would um, have issues with that. And, you know, unfortunately, I was reprimanded for that. Um, You know, obviously, you learn that that's a bad thing. You want to avoid that. But no one was really there to let me fail and recover. I Mm -hmm. was kind of reprimanded for that and almost in a very intimidating way so that there were, that was like the first instance. And then instances after that made me feel like, oh, I cannot mess up because if I do, Hmm. someone will get mad at me and I will have failed again. Yeah. And obviously the year I was in that particular lab, there were other instances where I failed. I, you know, I was working with mice and the injections were not great. So someone else had to do them. Hmm. Um, You know, I was, also kind of working in another lab's facilities as part of the project I was in. Mm -hmm. And that experiment wasn't working. And I didn't know the answer as to why. I didn't know where to look. Mm -hmm. I was working on my own as a Mm 19-year-old, you know, sophomore undergraduate. Um, And it was, it felt, I I mean, talking about imposter syndrome, I was feeling it incredibly at that time. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, I think back to that experience. And then I think about the students that I mentored as a PhD student, the Mm -hmm. undergraduates I had mentored, And I think about what I was able to do for them. And, you know, there were instances where they did fail. There were instances where I told them exactly what they needed to do and still they failed. Hmm. But I don't think, I mean, I hope I I didn't. I never put them in a situation where they felt like they were nothing. You know, Hmm. I, of course, you know, I would let them know that, hey, this isn't good, but let's talk about why this happened. Let's figure out why this happened so we don't repeat this mistake again. Mm. You know, um, it was always a learning experience in my eyes. And, you know, I hope that all my students that I've mentored, you know, experience that. I hope they never had an intimidating moment with me Mm. um, like I experienced when I was an undergraduate. Um, And, you know, this comes from having good teachers. It comes from people being empathetic it comes from people realizing that we are all human and we're going to make mistakes and we shouldn't shame each other for it. We should allow ourselves to grow from it. Mm. You know, it's one thing if you make a mistake and you keep making it and you don't learn from it and you don't care. That's one situation and that's also not good. Mm. But I think if someone is genuinely trying, if someone genuinely made a mistake, if someone is, you know, new to the field and really just wants to learn, give them a chance, let them make mistakes be there for them. Mm. You know, I, I cannot stress that enough, you know, at having gone through that myself mm. and realizing that and now trying to take that experience and do the best I can to be a good mentor, a good person to listen to, you know, not just in, you know, not just in the professional setting, but also in real life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just being a kind, empathetic person goes a long way. You know, even if you are a professor and you're tenured and you're a Nobel Prize winner, you know, I'm not going to respect you if you're a jerk. (laughs) You know, simply put, you have to be a kind person no matter how many titles you have. You know, that's the only way people are going to genuinely think of you in a positive way. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Well, thanks for... um sharing that and i think it's very important um to be good people in general like wherever you are whatever role you're carrying 
Because how you treat people will impact how they treat others and how they view mm-hmm. life or if they ever even pursue a career in something. You can even dim the light. Like someone will come in very excited about research then. That kind of treatment, uh, if they don't, you know, um, attach it, uh, detach it from the person, they might completely just get out of that career and do something else. Mm-hmm. Yet that's what exactly. they really love to do. Right. Okay. Um, let's talk about science ain't scary. Mm-hmm. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So um, this is actually a very, very new project of mine. And it's actually something that is more related to the scientific communications um, uh, kind of outreach uh, that I was thinking of. Um, Mm. So, you know, we've had this whole conversation about the importance of science communication and how can we get the um, public to be more engaged in science and not see it as scary. Mm. Um, And I think with our recent talks about media and, you know, how, how can we use media as a tool to, um, reach people and make them engage with it. Um, there is social media and, but the problem is that, um, it again, it again goes to, you know, trying to convince someone who has hated science or has been intimidated science all their life to sit down and look at what you have to offer Mm. after they've been through years and years of not wanting to look at that kind of thing stuff. Mm. And I think that's a, that's something that is, I think, a harder issue to tackle than, you know, trying to reach, you know, a new generation of um, people. Um, but I also thought about when I was thinking about Science Ain't Scary, mm-hmm. um, which is the, you know, for the listeners, uh, an Instagram page I started recently. Mm-hmm. Um, I was approaching it from the idea that when you think of social media nowadays, whether it be it, you know, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, um, Facebook even, it's just littered with all sorts of information, some good, most of it bad, mm-hmm. um, you know, for being honest about and not helpful. what is not helpful. Um, it can be really difficult to kind of make your way into that and try to get the um, views that you want um, for certain things. And so I think when it comes to science communication, we have to be realistic in our goals you know, mm. if we're not doing choreographed dancing, if we're not, you know, um, having eye-catching videos or pictures, mm-hmm. we're not, you know, we're not going to get the, you know, these 100,000 followers. It's just not going to happen because our society is not trained or taught to appreciate science in that way, unfortunately, at least not yet. Yeah. And so, you know, I think as scientific communicators – we should definitely try to use social media to our advantage, but have realistic goals. And so with Science Ain't Scary, my goal going into it was to talk about clinical trials, the most recent clinical trials, most you know fresh off the press uh, type work. Hmm. And in clinical trials that have to do with diseases that people often associate with death and being scared and, you know, life life-threatening, you know, diagnoses. So when someone gets a cancer diagnosis, uh, Huntington disease, um, Alzheimer's, you know, those diseases that just feel like 
when the doctor tells you you have it, your life has stopped. Hmm. Um, the idea with this page is to kind of inform the reader, okay, there are researchers working on this right now. They're looking at this, you know, new formulation of drug. They're trying this chemotherapy in clinical trials. They're looking at this, um, you know, product that hopefully we can get on the market in the next couple of years. Mm. You know, don't worry. Like we are working on this and not just, you know, sharing this 10 page paper out of New England Journal of Medicine, mm. but just summarizing it uh, in a short enough way so that you get your point across. And of course, social media, whether you're using Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, any of those platforms, mm -hmm. they are designed so that you cannot go on and on about what you're talking about. So it's almost as if you are already limited in how much space you have to talk about what you want to talk about. Mm -hmm. So it's actually a great way as a scientific communicator to practice your effective communication skills because you're already limited in the um, space that you have to speak, yeah. you know? And so... Um, with this idea in mind, um, I wanted to create something like that. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not expecting to go viral, you know, I'm not expecting to have but you as could. many followers. I mean that, yeah, I mean, that would be amazing, <laughs> but I mean, I'm just saying, you know, to any scientific mm. communicator out there, just mm. go in with very realistic goals. Um, and my goal here is, you know, to tag the photo or the, to tag the slides properly so that, you know, for example, uh, my last post was about, a, a breast cancer trial looking at two different um, drugs to evaluate um, progression-free survival in HER2 metastatic breast cancer patients. So what I did was I did summary slides in Instagram, mm -hmm. and then I used hashtags that were specific to words mentioned in that trial. So for example, example uh, HER2 antibodies, um, progression-free survival, advances in breast cancer. So I tried to use hashtags that were specific to what I would think someone who was looking for breast cancer information would want to see. Um, and so, you know, keeping that in mind, that was the kind of intention with starting this page. Because, you know, even though scientific communications is still kind of like a new field, um, we do have scientists have, we have scientists on the platform. We have scientists on social media making videos. Mm. We have, you know, um, uh, you know, educational spaces already. They, they, they do exist and they do have great followings. Mm. Um, the only thing is, is that we're still not at a point where all of society is accepting of what we do because, yeah. A lot of there's a lot of people out there that just don't know what it is. They don't want to sit down and learn what it is. Mm -hmm. And maybe it is because they are scared of it. And there's also a group of people out there that would never even to care to look up this information until it happens to them, mm -hmm. you know, which is fine because that is, you know, there's only so many hours in a day and so much we can pay attention to in a day. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, as a scientist and a scientific communicator, you know, let's address that. Let's, you know, not be saddened by it too much. Let's try to address it as best as we can. You know, even though we can't get everybody's approval right now, mm. let's try and be there so that one day we can, you know, and that's why I started this particular page. But, you know, 
as scientific communicators, as anyone, as a scientist who may be listening to this, who wants to do something like that, I mm-hmm. would say go for it because, you know, as much, there's so much space as you know, on those platforms, let's try to find, you know, weaknesses. Let's try to find gaps and address those gaps with our knowledge. You know, let's be, even though we're working hard and, you know, we're doing really great things in the lab, let's let the world know what we're doing. Let's let the world know what scientists are doing so that there is nothing to be afraid of. Yeah. And I think that's something I've been struggling with, trying to, um, that the point where you said that uh, there's a very low interest in terms of science topics or science content or anything to do with science with uh, most of the public, uh, unless a family member is affected or it's a global pandemic or, I don't know, there has to be something that will make them want to learn more, but most people have a very low interest in science topics. And it's something that I've been struggling to find out why and how can, is it, is it the communication? Is it, mm-hmm. is it that people just are not interested or what is it exactly? I, it's something I've been struggling with because if you don't, if people don't understand how science influences their daily lives, every single day, every single aspect of their lives, and how important it, for, is it, it is for them to understand certain things that affect them directly. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why... I think it's really good to see that we're now at a place where, number one, as scientists, we see the need for scientific communication. Mm -hmm. Um, I still think that the older generation of scientists don't see the importance of it. They, Mm. you know, are like, oh, well, it's not as good as being a researcher in the lab. Um, oftentimes because they, it benefits them. Mm. But I think we have a lot more people understanding that this is important. It's a fresh field to be a part of. It's a great field to be a part of. And it's a great field to really initiate change. I also think that at this point, we have to be realistic in what we can do. So, you know, we need to understand that for the most part, most of this, most of society is afraid of science, you know, doesn't like it for whatever reason. Maybe they were told as a young child, you know, it's not for them, Mm. you know, and we can't blame society for that. Mm. We have to take that information. And, you know, like we were saying with early education, use that for the next generation to get them inspired. Um, But, you know, talking about this with you and hopefully, you know, your listeners, hopefully we can continue to emphasize these points so we can actually initiate change. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think at this point, as scientific communicators, just being aware of our environment, our situation, who we are working with, and just being empathetic to everyone around, like, you know, don't be discouraged if, you know, you do start a social media page about science and Mm -hmm. no one is, you're not getting enough traction as say, you know, cat video or something, you know, it's, it's, it's just not at the same level of interest, unfortunately, Mm. but, you know, let's work on that. Let's try to make it to a point where it is like that. And, you know, 
we can be pioneers in that. And yeah. that's really cool. So, yeah. And there's some people who have actually really worked on trying to create interesting content that have something to do with science. Mm-hmm. And I feel like most of it is is packed from people's interest. Like people will be interested in something, then they find this thing that explains it in a very interesting way and they'll be like, okay, I want to listen to that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, the, still it goes back to that interest, that initial spark um, that is needed in our yeah. education. And thank you for telling a science communicator out there who is struggling to get an audience for their kind of content that they're taking so much time to, you know, create. They shouldn't be, you know, lose hope and, you know, still continue doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah.